Welcome to Not Your Ordinary Parts podcast, a podcast where we talk about hard things associated with the human experience with the goal of increasing awareness, growth, and healing. You may hear information from professionally licensed therapists, doctors, life coaches, healers, etc. This information is not medical advice or therapy and is not meant to replace actual therapy or instructions given by a doctor or a personal therapist. I'm your host, Jalan Johnson. My guest today is Natalie Kazarian. Natalie is a licensed marriage and family therapist who specializes in the treatment of anxiety, depression, developmental trauma, and behavioral struggles in children. Natalie's approach to therapy is collaborative, and she helps explore the thoughts, behaviors, and feelings that may be causing distress. So, Natalie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being my guest and agreeing to do this with me. Thank you. It's so wonderful to be here, and uh, I look forward to our chat. Likewise, likewise. Um, I gave a brief introduction about you, but just so that uh, everyone can know more about you, could you could you kind of tell us a little bit about your story and how you got to where you are today? Totally. Um, so I um, studied psychology in um, my undergraduate career. Um, actually psychology and English. I, I graduated uh, UC Berkeley. And after that time, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I kind of, I always talk about having a little bit of like a gypsy year or so where I would just kind of go around and did a lot of fun stuff. And I did a lot of research. I was researching at um, UCSF at the time and in the Department of Anesthesia. And I was working a lot with animals and something just kind of hit me when I was in the lab one day. And I was like, I I don't really care necessarily about learning the research aspect of this. I don't need to work with the animals and have the kind of like, um, you know, experience of, of doing that background work, but I've always loved working with people. And so it was at that time that I decided I'm going to go back to school. I had applied to Pepperdine University and I got in and I started studying um, clinical psych in their master's program um, at their location in Malibu. And it was kind of like, uh, I didn't know if I wanted to be a therapist still, but once I started doing the work and connecting with people, I can tell you that it just kind of opened my eyes to, I think, a calling that I have, or at least it, it dovetailed some of my strengths. And so ever since then, it's what I've been doing and I absolutely love it. Um, I work, as you've said, with people who have different emotional struggles, particularly developmental trauma, um, and that's kind of what I focus on on my social media accounts for people who follow me or maybe new followers who want to. Um, but overall, I'm an advocate for mental health, um, reducing stigma around mental health. And so that's why being on your podcast is just such an honor. And um, hopefully we can break some break some stigmas just by just by talking about it. Thank you so much for that. Um, how long have you been in the mental health field? Um, I've been in this field about 10 years now. Oh, so, so you're a veteran. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's like the more you know, the less you know in some ways. So uh, I consider myself a constant student and um, constantly reading and learning and listening to the, the people who have influenced me. And um, I just think that with more conversation, we have more understanding. And so... Uh, podcasts like yours are, you know, it, it's helpful to just hear other people's perspectives. So 
anything that people can learn more about mental health and how, quite frankly, unremarkable our emotional experiences in life, it really normalizes for people that um, there's nothing to be ashamed of, there's nothing to be afraid of, but we have to approach these things with, with love and care and intention. So very true. I appreciate everything you said. Yeah. Um, to kind of get into the, the body of the interview, I wanted to just start by asking a few questions and um, particularly one of just starting therapy. Um, can, can starting therapy be overwhelming and, and what can someone expect when starting? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, first of all, if the thought even crosses your mind, if you're out there thinking like, I don't know if I, maybe I need to start therapy, I don't know, you're already a step ahead of most because you first have to decide that this might be something that you want to do. Um, and it can be very hard. It can be very overwhelming, especially because the way that our mental health system is set up, it can be quite expensive. It can be um, hard to find a good fit of therapist, but these things are just uh, small hiccups in the grand scheme of what you would gain. Um, once you start therapy though, there are a few things that I think people need to keep in mind. The first is that sometimes things feel worse before they feel better. Um, oftentimes I describe starting therapy like, like we're archeologists going on a dig. And what we're gonna be doing is we're gonna be kind of dusting away all of the dirt and looking at some of the things that have fossilized underneath that have led to certain patterns or behaviors or ideas or beliefs that you still live with that are causing you distress. Um, so to be very patient with the process that this is not a quick fix, even though so many of us have a fantasy that once we start therapy, we're just gonna feel so, so much better. Everything's gonna just, it's gonna be a quick fix and that's just not how this works. Um, there is no pill to fix childhood trauma. There is no one thing to do that will make all of those depressive episodes and anxiety go away. But what we can do is start approaching it in a way with love and compassion to understand it and see how it's serving us in our lives. The second thing that I would tell people, especially if you're starting for the first time, is that finding the right fit of therapist is so important. So you might find that you start with somebody and it is just doesn't feel right. And you'll you'll know what I mean. You'll understand it when you're in the room or when you're virtual with somebody. Um, and that's OK. And you don't have to stick it or stay in a situation where the fit is not right. So feel free to continue to find the right fit of therapist because we know that the therapeutic alliance between patient and therapist, or excuse me, yeah, between patient and therapist is, it has huge impacts in outcomes for people. So you have to feel safe, you have to feel heard, you have to feel seen. Um, it's gonna be uncomfortable, but uh, you wanna make sure that there's an alliance there with your therapist. Wow. I think that was probably some of the best advice I've heard for starting therapy and what to expect. I love the analogy you gave about the archaeologists and, yeah. you know, that that really puts it in perspective of, of what it can be. Um, another question, what are some signs that someone may maybe needs therapy? So this might not be the most romantic way of describing it, but I think everybody could benefit. I mean, truly, like if you have ever been curious about why you said something or if you've ever gone over uh, something in your mind too many times, that's a sign. And I think we can all attest that we've all done that at some point. 
Um, maybe some larger signs, though, if you are feeling particularly down or sad most days, um, if you are very anxious or nervous about seemingly innocuous things like getting up and going to work or um, being in social settings. Um, and then, of course, if you're finding that it's very, very hard to engage in your life, whether that mean with the people around you or simply with yourself, right? You can't sit with yourself. You're always needing to distract yourself or do something else. Um, those could be signs, but between, between me and you and all the people listening, I think everyone can benefit. I agree so much. Yeah. Um, just, just with the, the everyday stresses that we have to deal with. And I mean, we all just went through the pandemic that in and of itself was something that I think all of us need to talk about and, express our feelings about and just get that energy out so that we can feel better. Cause it was, it was stressful. It was traumatic. It was traumatic. And I'm so glad that you're using that word to describe the pandemic because what we, what we all experienced was a collective trauma on a global scale. And we don't always get that type of experience. And I know that might sound a little bit, um, I don't know, diminishing, but it was an experience of going through this all together. And we can choose to see this as something that unites us that we're now all a part of, or we can see it as something that divides us. And I think therapy can help with different perspectives like that. So um, working through obviously your own personal trauma around what COVID did to you in your life um, is one thing, but also just normalizing how it changed a lot for a lot of people and the way that we do things. Even the fact that we do therapy now virtually, just so easily, that was never something I would have even considered um, four years ago or something like that before the pandemic. Right. right. Okay. So let's say, you know, someone is listening to this episode of the podcast, right? And they now know what to expect. Um, they know the signs and you kind of touched on this a little bit, but does this therapy like start off good and then get better or is it just difficult in the beginning and and it's just difficult until maybe you have a breakthrough or like what how can it how can the experience be when you start yeah oh, such a great question i i will say that it's about as diverse as each person is um sometimes just having a space to start is enough for some people and depending on what your goals are depending on the therapeutic um modality that the therapist uses, you may decide to be in therapy for just a very short amount of time, or you might find that you want to be in therapy a long time. Now, depending on what you're doing or what you're working on, um, your goals are going to shift and change and what, what comes up in the therapy will shift and change. I always tell people too, that you might be coming in with one thing, but we start to uncover and it's really a whole bunch of other things. Um, I think a really great example of this is when I work with couples and they want to come in and they want to work on um, like roles in the house, like who's doing what in the house. That's what we need to work on. But it's never really about who takes out the trash or who's doing the dishes. There's always some kind of emotional undercurrent. And that's kind of what therapy does. And that's that excavation process of looking at what are you bringing in versus what's underneath it. And typically it's um, it's just the tip of the iceberg. So to the extent that you can and have the resources to be in therapy for a while, you will get out about as much as you put in. Um, and, and if I could just speak for a moment on that idea that um, 
therapy is is helpful to kind of get you to a place, but the work that you put in is going to be how beneficial it is to you. We as therapists can be trained and know all of the things, but without a, a level of openness, some sort of curiosity, there's not a whole lot that can be done. We are skilled, but we're not magicians either. So I like to kind of demystify that for people because sometimes, especially people who come in for the first time, um, they're like, okay, well, I'm here. What? Why, am, why is nothing different? It's like, <laughs> because you have to engage in the process. Your participation is required to feel the benefit of. And then the more that you, the more the therapy that you do, the, the more compounded the effect. So yeah, I just kind of wanted to toss that out there too, if that makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah, of course. Um, well, number one, I'm stealing emotional undercurrent because I love that. I'd never heard that before. And then also um, what you just described as far as the process of therapy, it made me think about um, Good Will Hunting, which is one of my favorite movies. And yeah, yes. I mean, Robin Williams was, he was a magician, you know, in, in, in the way that he dealt with him. <laughs> but it was only when Will started to accept the process and to surrender to it is when he started to benefit from it. So that what you, the way you described it made a lot of sense. And I, I'm so glad you brought up Goodwill Hunting. It's such a fantastic film. Um, but what we can also track in that movie is how the, the more that uh, Will's character trusted Robin Williams, the more things were, be, were able, he was able to open up. And it was almost like, um, it was correlated in that way. And so that's also why finding the right fit of therapist is so important because you're very unlikely to open up to somebody who you don't really like or trust all that much. Now, I'm not saying that you're going to always enjoy therapy. I, one of my clients actually, I wonder if she'll ever listen to this, but she one time said like therapy is like eating your vegetables. Like you don't always want to, but like, God, you know, you need to eat that spinach and you're just going to get it in the smoothie in the morning and just kind of get it done. But over time, you might actually feel the benefit. You, it's like from the inside out versus the outside in. So mm -hmm. it's for sure an inside job. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So big question, um, two part question I have for you. Number one, what is trauma and what are some myths about trauma? Okay. I love talking about trauma. So just cut me off whenever <laughs> I could probably <laughs> to say about this. One of the easiest ways to, to define trauma is basically anything outside of your ability to cope with something. And so if you think about that, if it's anything outside of your ability to cope, then things that may not appear, quote unquote, abusive could also cause trauma. And so that's a myth that I really kind of want to bust, that trauma is not just for veterans coming home from Afghanistan. This is not the only way that people um, experience PTSD or complex trauma, um, that it can be kind of everyday things that you just don't know how to deal with. Now, if we can put into context to people's ages, right? So if you have, let's say a three-year-old versus a 16-year-old, the way, let's say a caregiver speaks to the three-year-old and the 16-year-old, the three-year-old might feel traumatized by where the 16-year-old will laugh it off and walk away. And so if you look at how your nervous system is designed to protect you, but it's also about building a skill set 
of resilience around you. So I just think that the, the, the biggest myth is that you aren't traumatized because you didn't grow up in a, you didn't have a terrible childhood or you didn't, um, have people physically hurting you, but emotional, psychological, spiritual trauma can occur at any, at any moment, at any time. And so being able to identify it as trauma is the first step. And then of course, knowing what to do to heal the trauma is the next. Mm. That was a great explanation. Um, okay. So now that we kind of have an idea of what trauma is, right. You don't have to necessarily be in a war or, you know, in a, in a 20 car pileup on the highway, it could be just the way someone speaks to you. If your nervous system can't handle it in a moment, what are some, some common reactions to trauma? Um, okay. Let's see some of the, some of the really big ones. Um, outbursts, big anger, anger can be a huge, um, like just like uh, topically, if somebody is, is responding in a bigger way than what the situation kind of looks like, like for instance, um, I like to think about uh, road rage as like a really great example of like latent trauma sometimes with people, not always, but like for the sake of this example, um, when people get very, very big around something that seems quite small, that's how you know that there's probably a trauma history, or at least uh, if I'm oversimplifying that. Um, withdrawing, kind of moving away from the people and the connections that make them feel good and safe, um, that's a protective mechanism. Uh, dissociation, um, that's a little bit more complex. I don't know if you want me to go into that right now, but this idea that your nervous system, again, is designed to protect you. It's a very sophisticated mechanism of removing you from the present moment to make sure that you are not being threatened. Um, the thing is, is that threat is perceived. And so per perceived threat can cause just as much withdrawal as actual threat. So if a tiger was chasing me, obviously, like I would, my nervous system would react and I would run. But let's say my friend yells at me, I might react in the same way. It's like those two things aren't exactly the same. The threat isn't exactly the same, but my perception of it is. It's the way it feels that determines the response. And I think a, a lot of times we may confuse our feelings um, with reality because, um, you know, uh, my therapist always told me, argue facts, not feelings because feelings come and go. You may feel a certain way one minute and the next minute you, you feel a different way. So don't depend on your feelings to uh, kind of guide you and, and, you know, make you give you a direction instead of, you know, the facts about the actual situation in the moment, instead of how you feel about it. That's, that's exactly right. Um, yeah. Your feelings are always valid, but they're not always the truth. And so I work with clients mm. on that, that, you know, it's, it's valid to feel angry. It's valid to feel sad. It's valid to feel shame, all of the things, but just because you feel it does not somehow create the truth in it. That might not be what was going on. And so being able to peel away or at least understand that just because you feel it doesn't make it true, it makes it valid. And so if we can mm. validate that trauma, if we can validate the experience, then that frees up some space in our nervous system because it makes us feel safer. And then we're able to look at the situation or the context and hopefully provide some um, insights as to kind of what went on. 
That's hard to do, especially when you're activated in the moment to understand that just because you feel that way doesn't mean you're right. You know, that takes a lot of work to be able to, in the moment, you know, process what you're feeling and then be able to decipher between it being real or just you feeling that way. Right. And, you know, everybody operates from their own levels of perception and things like that. So there's no there's no objective truth in the world. But I can tell you that um, the traumatized nervous system will distort quite a bit to keep you safe. Mm-hmm. And so if we can start to see it, too, not as this thing that's working against us, but that is trying to work for us, we create an, al- an alliance with ourself. And that is necessary for healing because it doesn't really work well if we're just constantly shaming and criticizing ourselves. Um, yeah. People don't like shame their way into healing. That doesn't work. Right. I think it takes a lot of grace and to be able to understand that um, there are parts of you that your nervous system has created to protect you. When you get activated in that moment, you can say, Oh, okay. I understand. You think there's, you know, a threat, there's not a threat. We're okay. And then you can actually calm yourself. And, and that, that type of self-regulation takes a lot of work to get to, but being able to do it, like you, you start to understand, Oh, okay. I see what's going on. And then you don't have to have those big outbursts or you don't have to, you know, chase somebody down the highway with road rage and things like that. Totally. No, that's, that is so well said. I, I completely agree. Okay. So next question, what is developmental trauma? Okay. So developmental trauma is what's sometimes called little T trauma. So just to kind of give you a comparison, big T trauma is probably what you think of natural disasters, going to war, seeing these like kind of like one big event that kind of happens in your life that changes you forever. It's very easy to describe how you feel scared to drive a car after you were in a terrible car accident. People can get that. That's big T trauma, right? Developmental trauma or complex trauma or little t trauma, these are all the same thing, are the small interactions, usually relational, that occur over time, typically in our families of origin, or at least that's where they begin, um, that lead to an erosion of feelings of safety, feelings of trust and confidence. Um, And so over time, we develop these coping strategies um, that don't really help us, but it's because we have this feeling that we are not really that safe in our environment. So an example of developmental trauma could be things like emotional neglect growing up. These things, you know, I think even prior to the past 10 years, were not really discussed in such an open way. Um, But like if you were growing up, you had all of your, your needs met physically. You always had clothes on your back, food on the table. There was a time when people thought that that was enough. You did your job as a parent. If you, you know, were providing for your child, but nobody checked in with that child emotionally. Nobody asked, what is it like to be you? What does it feel like? Um, And so over time, the lack of emotional attunement, which is something huge in developmental psych, we talk about how important it is to feel seen as a child, to be checked in with, to not be spoken to in an angry way, because all of these things change our nervous system. And so if you grew up in a home where your parent was constantly yelling at you, nothing, they never hit you, but they were yelling at you. There was never a time where they came and sat down and said, hey, what's going on with you? These things can lead to developmental trauma. So it's the small interactions 
that compound over time that lead to a changed nervous system. I'm not sure if I answered that question so succinctly, but please tell me if I can clarify. I think you did very well. Um, I just okay. kind of want to bridge off of what you said. Can those little T can enough little T traumas equate to a big T trauma? Interesting question. Um, not not necessarily. The little T traumas can certainly change your nervous system, and the big T traumas like a car crash or um, being a part of a natural disaster or going to war, right? That's kind of a big T trauma. These little T traumas don't necessarily lead to the big T, but they can both impact your nervous system in a really insidious way. And I would even argue that the developmental trauma is more insidious because oftentimes it's invisible to people. Mm. Again, like if you're talking about how you were in a car accident, most people would say, oh my gosh, that's so terrible. Are you okay? What are you doing? How can I help you? But rarely are we saying, you know, I noticed that the tone of your father's voice was really harsh. And does that happen a lot for you? You know, what is that like for you? We're not doing that because maybe there's a societal stigma against it. Maybe people feel like it's overstepping. Maybe people don't even know. Maybe people don't even know. So it, it can be more insidious because it's the small, more invisible things that happen relationally that lead to our changed nervous system. And then um, to build off of that as well, a lot of times we feel like, you know, if we go to someone's house or as a, as a kid, I remember, you know, you go to someone's house and, you know, you hear them get scolded or, or something happens and, you know, you, that's something you don't want to be meddling. So you don't get involved in other people's business like that. So those things aren't talked about. And that right. I believe that's how, because they, they aren't discussed, they can lead to the, the complex trauma, like you said. Yes. Yes. And and look, I'm not necessarily advocating. I don't know how to necessarily change that other than to tell anybody who has a child or who wants to have a child in any capacity that you better work on your own shit first because you're going to pass it down if you don't. Mm -hmm. You're going to pass down all those things. And that's where intergenerational trauma comes in. And it's the small belief. It's the belief systems. It's the ways that we were parented. It's the tones. It's the schemas that we develop in our own life that we end up passing down to our children and it's not all bad there might be good things passed down but it's those traumas that then will be continued continued and repeated and repeated over and over again unless somebody decides to say hey i'm going to stop this i'm going to go to therapy i'm going to figure this out because i can't get i can't do this to my kids that's mm -hmm. so true yeah so true um and that would be that person would be referred to as like the cycle breaker right that's exactly right. Yeah. Or at least that's the term that's coined, but there are so many ways to describe these really brave and wonderful, what I think kind of chosen people in, in the world. So if you're a cycle breaker out there, I see you and um, <laughs> keep it up. We need more of that. And I actually think this new generation, Gen Z, people talk all smack about it and stuff, but they're doing something right because they are very open. They are very, um, they don't feel stigma about going to therapy or talking about what's on their mind. So I think we can learn a lot from Gen Z in, in this area. I agree. I feel like they were able to, um, you know, take the best of all the generations that came before them and then have awareness to see the things that weren't good and say, no, that's not for me. So I agree. Kudos to them. Yeah. Kudos to them. And, uh, yeah.
Okay. Um, what are some unacknowledged mental health issues? Unacknowledged mental health can really be anything from depression, anxiety, ADHD, um, OCD, PTSD, honestly, anything, anything that is basically not labeled or called what it is. Now, I'm not here to over pathologize people. I use these terminal, this terminology as a way of saying this is typically what a cluster of symptoms looks like. You know, um, if you can't sleep at night and you are uh, constantly worried and you can't get through the day and you're you you're you know you're sweating at every interaction, you probably have some kind of anxiety disorder. But if you never call it that you might think, well, this is just who I am. And that phrasing, this is just who I am, or this is the way things are, I think is this catchphrase that can be so damaging for people because sure, there are personality differences, but it's not a personality trait to, you know, not know how to necessarily engage with people. And if you don't, then let's talk about spectrum disorder. Let's talk about how ADHD impacts you, right? There's something else happening here. It's not because you are deficient as a person. But if we don't have the right terminology, people start to believe that this is who they are. And that can be challenging on the on your own self-concept and your own identity. And then that leads to feelings of anger and resentment and honestly, a pretty dissatisfying life. Mm -hmm. Agree. I, I think that we've gotten so or, or the term that's just how he is or that's just how she is have been so normalized that nobody wants to look past that to the actual behavior and what could be causing the behavior. So I'm glad that you pointed that out. Yeah. And a lot of times too, it's, it's, it's trauma. It's trauma. It's just yeah. trauma. And I know that this is hard sometimes, especially if like, um, I work sometimes I work with families and kids will come in and they'll, they'll be saying, you know, I think this is a dynamic issue, right? Like in our family and X, Y, and Z is going on. And then the parents sometimes take that on as like, well, now I'm a bad parent, right? Which again, that's not what we're talking about. When we talk about unhealed trauma or intergenerational trauma, it's more about how do we create an awareness with love and compassion instead of blame? So people can take responsibility for what is their part, take responsibility for the part that they didn't know, and then do better in the future. And that's why sometimes these, um, these like naming it is can be so powerful because if we know that what you're dealing with isn't just a lazy kid they're depressed now all of a sudden there's a completely different paradigm that we're looking through and now you can help your depressed child versus just shame them for not getting their homework done that's so true so true and i and i think that being able to have a name or a reason could now lead to a treatment and then you know, that that person now can because I know a lot of people struggle with ADHD for so long and it was no one knew what it was. So, you know, they were just the kid that was this or the kid that was that. But now knowing what it is and having a name for it and then being able to diagnose it and treat it, those people are getting relief, you know, on a scale that is un, unparalleled. Yes, yes, absolutely. And um, ADD and ADHD can often if gone un treated or unacknowledged, right? It can look like all sorts of things. It can look like personality disorders. It can look like narcissism. It can look like um, anxiety. It can look like a defiant child. I mean, we have all of these really nasty names for something that is 
really outside of this kid's control or this person's control. And so if we can put a name to it, it not only destigmatizes, but it creates the context of understanding where now we can treat it, just as you were saying. Mm, exactly. Okay, my next question is, what is self-sabotage? Self-sabotage, okay. <clears throat> self-sabotage to me is such an interesting concept because it's basically you doing something that that goes against what it is that you actually want or that you actually are aligned with. Um, it's basically like not setting up your future self for success by doing things that harm yourself now. Um, an example that I've given on my Instagram and that I think is just a really good one is like, you're driving home from work at night, you see your gas tank is on E, but you think, eh, I'll just get gas in the morning. But tomorrow morning you wake up late and you're exhausted and then you get in the car and now you don't have any gas and now you got to stop and now you're late to work and now your whole day is messed up because you just didn't get gas when you needed gas. And so that's a perfect example of self-sabotage. It can seem really innocuous, like, oh, it's no big deal, right? It's just this one little thing that I'm not going to do for myself. I'll put it off. But it has this huge cascade of effect afterward. And of course, I'm giving a really simple example, but it can be anything that does that exact same process. Uh, <laughs> it's funny you say that because I do that now. It's just like, I know it'll take me 10 minutes to get gas and it'll, it'll make, you know, the entire day, the next day, just go smoothly. But sometimes it, it feels like if I don't have that adrenaline rush of, mm. you know, doing, and that's, that's a trauma response, um, in and of itself, which I now know, but, um, or, you know, I'll be in the shower and it's just like, I'll think of something to do that I don't have time to do that. I wouldn't even do if I had the time. And it's, it's almost sometimes it feels like I crave that adrenaline rush or that, that chaos that comes with it. And that I think that is also a form of self-sabotage. So I'm glad you mentioned that. No, I, man, I, I totally hear that. And how, like, how do you, how do you get through that now that you're aware of it? Just to like help people know that first of all, it's very normal, but like, what do you do to get through that? Well, I tell myself, okay, this is a pattern that you have because of an old version of you. And now that you know better, you have to do better. So what will happen if you don't get gas tonight? You know, and then I think about all the things that could go wrong. So I avoid it. Or if I'm in the shower and now I want to, you know, clean the grout, that's going to take me an hour and I only have 15 minutes to get to work. <laughs> what will happen if you do it? So prioritize, you know, make sure you do the most important things and be an adult. Yes. Yes, completely. Yeah. What you're describing is that type of self-awareness that is absolutely necessary when you're overcoming these old patterns. And self-awareness to me is like the greatest gift that you can give yourself because you can't change something if you don't know it's there. Right. So true. So we talked about um, self-sabotage and when you can't get out of that self-sabotage loop, it could feel like you're stuck. Um, so what does it mean to, to actually be stuck and how do you get unstuck? So being stuck is a, is a feeling it's a, it's an experience that we have and it, it can feel like we don't have any good options that get us to a place of where we want to go. But the, the, the fiction about stuckness is that it's, it's because you don't believe you have the choice. It, it comes from a, a, a place of, I don't either know I have a choice or I don't believe I have a choice. 
So a way to get out of stuckness is to tap into that feeling of empowerment that we all have and create the awareness and go through that process that you actually just reflected back to me about what will happen if I do this? What will happen if I don't do this right now? And know that there is a divergence and whichever path you pick, you are making that decision for yourself, but now at least you know it. So if you want to stay in, you know, this comes up a lot in relationships. I see this a lot with people who come in and they're like, I'm in this relationship. I don't want to, you know, it's not very satisfying for me, but I don't know. It's fine. Like we're just kind of doing it. And so we'll dig a little bit deeper and it's just because they can't imagine what it would be like to do something else. What would that really look like? And oftentimes when we go through that cognitive exercise, sometimes people will be like, wait, I have it pretty good right now. I, I come home to somebody that I love and like, and it might not always be exciting, but the alternative sounds awful. Versus when we go through that cognitive exercise and some people come to the conclusion of like, it makes me so excited to imagine like being out there and on my own and being alone. Like, so if you never go down the path, you just feel stuck. And stuckness is basically just complacency. Complacency is basically feeling like you're not really making a decision. And if you're not making a decision, then we're back to the stuckness. So it's a cycle. That makes a lot of sense too. I mean, I love the examples that you gave about the, the options that the, their, your clients have once they have that discussion about, you know, what they could do. Um, so we talked about a lot of things so far and a lot of, a lot of these issues stem from, um, our caregivers or our family and, and just old patterns of thinking or ways of being, um, or dysfunction. So what, what are some dysfunctional family rules? Dysfunctional family rules. I say the first and foremost is that you don't, you don't get to talk about it. There's no, there's never a moment in your family growing up where people sat down and said, what's, what's going on here? What are, what's, what's happening? Is everybody okay? Is everybody not okay? And, and if we're not okay, can we talk about how to make it better? Right? So family dysfunction comes from holding certain secrets or, or not being able to talk about things. Um, I always like to tell people too that in in families, you're working with many people. And when you're working with many people, we're talking about a system. And families are no different than, and I don't mean to sound crude, but they're basically like machines. And each part of the machine has to continue to operate in their exact role. But if something about that machine changes, then the whole system actually changes. So this is why sometimes people who come to individual therapy can have such an impact on their family system. Not always, but it will. something is going to change if this one part changes. So, um, you know, I get so many inquiries, especially on my Instagram of like, how do I help my mom or dad or sister or brother go to therapy? Like they don't want to go, right? That it's like, they think it's my problem. And I tell them, first of all, you can't make somebody do something, but if you are a part of this system by you and by you going and doing it, you're going to change the way that these roles are. And so if you change the roles then the whole system will shift. So it may not be exactly what you want, but the dysfunction of it will shift around. If that makes sense. Very much. Very much. I, I like that example too, because if you try and convince somebody to do something, a person convinced against their will is still not convinced. Right. Um, yes. but if you do your part, the system has to change because you're no longer playing your old role. 
So that, that mm -hmm. makes a ton of sense. Yeah. And, um, it, you know, it's so important to, if anybody's listening right now and they're like, I totally resonate with that, you know, it, do your work, do your work, do what you need to do to feel healed and complete and, and all of those things. And yes, there are other people who you probably wish would be different in some way, but you can't control those people, but you can control yourself and how you interact with those people. So if you can become aware and wake up to your own traumas and your own misgivings and your own feelings of resentment and anger and, and what brings you joy and all of those things, then you're going to be a very different person in that person in the person who you want to change his presence. Gotcha. That's good advice. Okay. One of your posts said inaction is also a choice. Can you explain that? Yes. So, um, just kind of, I get on like soapboxes sometimes, so please knock me down. <laughs> One of the things that brings me so much joy to talk about is how we sometimes live in passivity, meaning we believe that if we just kind of go along to get along, then everything will typically be fine because we're not making any waves. But passivity is so toxic and so insidious at times, especially when it's a chronic thing that we go through. And passivity leads to not making a decision, right? Kind of like um, delegating out our choice, our sense of empowerment. And so when I said inaction is also a choice, it's basically saying you might not be aware, but by you not making this decision, you are choosing that whatever the world decides for you is, is how it's going to be. But it's likely you're not going to be very happy with that because you're not asserting yourself. So um, working through passivity is a way to work through that kind of inaction that happens very passively for us. D does that make sense? It does. Yeah. It does. And I would never knock you off your soapbox. Just no, I probably need to. I mean, I can talk about passivity all day. Probably <clears> it bugs me a lot. I get really bugged by passivity because I want to just empower people to know that you get to assert yourself. You don't have to wait for the world to happen to you. You, you can happen to the world. And um, that shift in mindset is huge when it comes to just kind of like major life changes when you realize that you can influence the people around you, your environment, what you're doing with your time versus waiting for them or that thing to happen to you is a game changer. Could passivity be categorized as a trauma response? Yes, not always, but it certainly can. Um, and the way okay. that that shows up is in the fawn response. It's fight, flight, freeze, and fawning. Um, and oftentimes fawning is a form of, of passivity. You know, you just kind of placate, you kind of go along to get along and you're like, I just don't want to make any risks. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to upset anything, but okay. when you do that, you're just accepting whatever is. And you, again, usually it's not really what people want. Okay. So we, again, we've talked about a lot of things associated with the reasons for behavior or why people do things. And, um, a lot of it stems from childhood and from the caregivers and family systems. Um, and then you, you mentioned earlier, emotional neglect. Um, yeah. what are some signs of emotion, emotional neglect that you see 
that stemmed from childhood? Signs of emotional neglect, um, not paying attention to your own needs, um, judging yourself really, really harshly, um, not being able to ask for help. A lot of people who have been emotionally neglected typically are very resistant to coming to therapy because there's never really been a space for them to feel heard or seen or safe. So they don't know that this could actually be very useful. Um, people who don't talk to, to people in a vulnerable way, like if you have, you, there's a guardedness about you. If you've been emotionally neglected, you really can't trust people. So why would I go to my friend and tell them that I'm having a bad day? You just kind of stuff it down. Um, suppression, repression are, are signs of emotional neglect. Um, yeah, just not feeling safe to express yourself. Okay. Um, what are rejection wounds and where do they stem from? Is that something that could be associated with that emotional neglect? Absolutely. Uh, rejection wounds, let me start over. Rejection wounds stem from feeling unsafe in childhood. And so as children, we have this very, very common, but it, and it's very normal, but kids are like inherently narcissistic. They kind of think that the whole world revolves around them because in many ways it, it does. When we're infants, we are completely narcissistic because we need other people to basically do everything for us. And we believe that, you know, the whole world is, is turning for us. Of course, the older we get, and as development occurs, we realize that's not true, but we can hold on to that fear that we will not be accepted or belong in our family of origin, our family system, unless we fall in line or we follow these family rules. Now, depending on the rules of the family, they can be very rigid or quite flexible. People who grow up in very rigid, let's say, uh, I'll just for the sake of example, like a culturally rigid home, like you need to grow up, you need to go to college, you need to um, become a doctor or a lawyer, right? You need These are things that you have to do. And if you don't do this, we're going to somehow reject you from this unit. You know, we're not going to accept these different nuances in you. Um, we're not going to, there's not going to be a feeling of belonging anymore. And so that fear is, is basically of being cast out. And because we're human beings and we're kind of, you know, we're animals, we, we need our tribe. We need social interaction. We need to belong. This is not something that is a luxury. This is a necessity. So kids will sometimes um, hide parts of themselves or shut down parts of themselves as a way of saying, I do not want to threaten that sense of belonging. But this can lead to a rejection wound or a fear of rejection. And so as those people grow up, they still engage in these masking behaviors or hiding behaviors because they don't want to be outcast from their family of origin or their community, um, which can be unbelievably painful. Mm -hmm. So to, to deal with the pain of being um, rejected or some of the neglect that you have as a child, a lot of people turn to a lot of different things for, for as a coping mechanism. Um, one is food, right? Um, which could be binge eating. What what can binge eating do for emotional pain and how does that work? So the relationship between binge eating and trauma is very, very strong. Um, binge eating is actually not really about food at all. Binge eating is about um, filling a void of where the emotion needs to be or where the connection needs to be. And if somebody grew up in a place where they feared rejection a lot or they were emotionally neglected, 
they may have a very troubling relationship with food where it's kind of feast or famine. And one of the reasons people binge is to fill an emotional void, to try to comfort themselves. Um, but all that is, is unhealed trauma. Um, so it, you really can't talk about binge eating without talking about trauma responses, uh, unhealed trauma, childhood wounding, whether that be neglect or abandonment or anything else. So um, food is used as a coping skill or a coping mechanism. But the thing is, is that what you're really trying to fill is not a physical, like a hunger void. It's an emotional void. What are some, some other things that you see with your clients or just in general that people use as a coping mechanism, like aside from food? Um, so in addition to food, we see a lot of substance abuse, um, whether that be alcohol or drugs. Um, people use sex, gambling, um, social media, um, watching a bunch of TV. Um, it can even be like uh, exercise. I mean, I'm not, that's one of the healthier ways to cope, but people who get really compulsive about anything, anything can be seen as um, an unhealthy coping strategy if you become compulsive about it or obsessive about it. Um, so really life is kind of about finding the right balance for you, but the fixation on soothing that stems from trauma, not knowing that you get to soothe yourself or how to soothe yourself without these um, kind of damaging um, coping skills. But like food, I'd say like the worst ones are probably like alcohol, drugs, uh, food, um, sex and gambling, I'd say are the, the, the ones that people turn to that seem to be pretty damaging. Mm. Okay. Well, we talked about a lot of things. Thing. Go ahead, go ahead. People can be kind of addicted to dynamics, um, addicted to certain people or the way, you know, certain terrible dynamics in relationships, um, you know, because they're trying to correct an experience from childhood, you might go back, not you, but like the proverbial, you might go back to certain dynamics in relationships over and over and over again. So even if like, Oh, you know, in a heterosexual couple, if a woman is dating a man and then she's like, oh, this guy's no good for me. But then every relationship somehow mirrors that exact relationship. It's like it's not about the person. It's about the dynamic that you're enacting over and over and over again. And usually that's um, a desire to correct something from childhood. Oh, that's pretty deep. Um, I never thought about how that could you could be addicted to a, a dynamic and not even really be aware of it because you're chasing trying to correct something that stems from childhood. Wow. Yes. The corrective wow. emotional experience is what people are aiming toward, but it's largely unconscious unless you're aware of it. And um, it can be quite complex. So definitely if that's something that if you're listening, if you relate to that, this is something you could talk about with a therapist. Mm. <laughs> uh, like I, um, we, we covered a lot and I, you did an amazing job of explaining and answering the questions. So thank you. Um, so I wanted to ask if you could use your platform or, or your voice to encourage someone who may be struggling with the idea of therapy, who's on the fence, you know, still wondering if it's something they should do or, or who just doesn't feel comfortable talking about their big feelings or emotions. What would you say to them? I would say, I understand I, it's hard. Um, especially if you haven't 
it hasn't been modeled for you that you get to talk about things or express yourself or that talking even helps. Um, I'd say continue to kind of follow pages like mine. And there's a ton of really amazing content creators out there listening to podcasts like, like this one, not your ordinary parts. Um, just kind of continuing to expose yourself to this world will hopefully over time help you feel more comfortable. But ultimately, it's, it would be to just try, just try, because there are very few downsides to just trying. Um, I'm not saying that there can't be damaging effects of going to therapy. There, there are, but it's, it's minimal. It's very small because at the end of the day, you could always just not go back to see that therapist. And I, and like I said, at the beginning of our, our chat today, um, finding the right fit is so important. So, um, I'd say just muster up the courage, talk to people who, who have been in therapy. If you don't know, reach out to a community online. There's so many subreddits or Facebook groups or, um, you know, you could DM pages like mine, you know, I, I typically try to respond, especially if it's not like spammy or fishy. Um, you know, we're just human beings on the other side of this. So just reach out and, 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 and hopefully, hopefully you will muster up the courage, but, um, I do understand how hard it can be, but just know that there are very few downsides to just trying. Okay. So if someone wanted to go to your page, um, and follow you where, where can they find you online or on social media? So I have, uh, an Instagram it's Natalie Kazarian MFT. Um, I have a website. You can just Google my name. I'm imagining my name is going to be somewhere on this podcast, right? It will, <laughs> yes. Um, and, um, those are, those are kind of the two, the two main ways that you can get in touch with me. I will tell people that, um, I'm licensed in the state of California. So if you are wanting to work with me, but you're not in California, unfortunately, I'm not able to, but, um, to look on things like psychology today, um, therapy, den, just Googling therapists in my area, there's so many ways to connect you. And then of course, if you have insurance to, uh, go on your insurance's website and look at providers in your area who probably have openings and don't get discouraged. Um, you know, therapists are kind of flooded these days. There's just since COVID, it's been unreal in terms of how busy we've all been. So if somebody doesn't call you back, it's okay. Just keep trying. Just keep trying. And I know it's hard not to feel rejected, but um, just know that it's it's likely that they're either full, they, they didn't get your message, try again, or just move on to the next therapist. Okay. Well, Natalie, thank you so, so much for this, um, for the information that you shared. It was It was really helpful and really great. Um, I always try to ask questions or make the topics about something that, that I have struggled with or that I wondered about. Um, so I know that if, if it's beneficial to me, then anyone who's gone through the struggles that I have gone through can, can benefit as well. Mm -hmm. um, and and the, the manner in which you went about explaining it, it was so concise and to, just easy to follow and understand. So I'm really mm -hmm. grateful that, that you were you know, you chose to do this with me and that you gave me your time. So I want to just say thank you and thank you for who you are and what you do. Oh man, that, that means more to me than, you know, thank you so much for having me on, on your podcast. And, um, thank you for your openness. You shared some things on here and it's, I think it's so wonderful for, for people to just hear specifically men talk about, you know, what it's like to, to, to go through therapy. I mean, not always the case, but 
we need to help our men out a little bit better than we have been because there's typically more of a stigma about men receiving treatment than women. So thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for talking about it. Thank you for working through whatever it is that you had to work through to get here. And um, this was really eye-opening for me and, and certainly enjoyable. So thanks.